You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Mr. Will the Thrill. Uh, greetings and salutations, everyone. All right, and our storyteller for this series... I heard nothing. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm having a smoothie right now. It's so... Sunday. I got him a smoothie. I do it's have called, a smoothie. It's called Java the Nut. <laughs> Pretty funny for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Yeah. Y'all are taking that living in Georgia thing real seriously, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, Trav, it's Sunday, man. It's Jesus' day. And he would want me to have a smoothie, so that's what I'm doing. <laughs> now I'm going to introduce the third person in this <laughs> podcast, and that is my brother, TJ2, the deuce. Ooh, oh, see, somebody's taking, someone taking Sunday very seriously. What are you drinking? I am having an Allagash white wheat ale. Ooh, Allagash. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, if, tasty, tasty. If anybody yeah. cares, I'm also having a smoothie, and it's called Last Mango in Paradise. It's a theme. <laughs> Best 230 calories I've ever had. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So luckily, I don't think we have anyone to talk about. Yeah, thankfully. I don't believe we did. But, yeah, we, the way we started off this year, I thought this this was just going to uh, be a blood. Yeah. Bath, but it's really, it's eased up some. We've had some terrible, every loss is terrible, obviously. But the pace we started off in January, I was like, God, this is like 2016 revisited. Ugh, 2016 and 2010, are just the worst. Mm-hmm. This, those two years were just, I mean, 2001 was terrible, but mm-hmm. for like one specific reason. Sure. And he, 2016 spread it out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then 2020 was like, here, hold my pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the fact that we have gone a week, we're actually recording this early, so that could change. But if you head over to Rock and Roll Heaven Pod on Facebook, our admin, Thea, is just nailing this job. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Hey, hey, guys, guys, sorry. Probably should have consulted with you first. I had to let Thea go. You monster. Why? How dare well, you? we have to make sure associating with the right kind of people. And she posted that she hated Steely Dan. And so I just felt like that was someone we probably wouldn't want to associate with anymore. I did see that post. And I, I, I kid, of course. but I, I <laughs> No, Thea is uh, legitimately the best thing that has ever happened to uh, our Facebook page. I not liking Steely Dan, though. I don't. Really, you know in what? years. But you know what? She accepts me for who I am. A Dirty person work. that Wild personally school. hates Kids Phil Collins. No, it's fine. She Black is Al. a gem. And we love her. Just like we love Penelope and and Black Adriana. Fire. Yep, it's Penelope. every every we we Christine. We love you all, like all of our fans. Blue. Yep, Chris. Hi, Nick. Uh, see, this what is up? what Nick. Yeah, what's up, Nick? Like this is what happens when no one dies. We just start yelling out people's names that follow us on Facebook and like email us. <laughs> I just, but <laughs> I, Careful, I, we... I, I will grant you, in a lot of ways, that to steal it in is a bit of an acquired taste. In some instances, I, have- I I can see some people going like, uh, no, not not. Did they me, do? They did they? No, no, they didn't. That was the Orleans. I'm thinking you're still the one. Why well, Orleans? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was Orleans. Correct. Yeah, I do I do mistake them for doing that song? What is it? Baker Street Blues? Is that average white band? Or is that? You mean just Baker Street? Baker Street. Uh, yeah, that is uh, Jerry Rafferty. 
That's Jerry Rafferty. Well, a which is of which has got which has got the best saxophone solo. Formerly a formerly a Steelers wheel. That was at Steelers wheel, not Steely Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we're just gonna like name off band members and our our friends that follow us on Facebook. Okay. Be careful. We're name off. Into the fire. All right. You know what? I think this is a really great time for a sponsor break. So we're just going to take a really quick sponsor break. I'm going to try to trake these guys and uh, we'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. And we are back. Okay, so Crocus. I, okay, I'm done. I've I've actually uh I've basically a duct taped both of their mouths shut. So now it's the it'll be, full. It's gonna be really hard to do my episode uh, this way. Dang it. Okay, fine. Well, I I'll say I will say this. It was good that we had a little levity at the beginning because this episode um there's I've some fun t- parts. I've been told at the outset. Um, we get to a real real sad place by the end. So, jeez. Oh, I know what's coming, and I don't like it. I don't. No spoilers. And, and you know, if you know the life story of Waylon, you might know what I'm alluding to and about where we might be getting. You might not know his version of things and how things unfolded through his eyes. And it's fascinating, and it's tragic. And um, I guess if you fellas are ready, we'll get started. All right, yeah, then. I mean, I'm I'm not ready, but I guess we have to do it anyway. So, <laughs> LD said, I'm, I'm, "LD said, I'm I'm neither ready nor a fella, but go ahead." Yes, <laughs> that, that this works. That, that aside, so in part one of the series that we're in the midst of now on the great Waylon Jennings, we traced his early life in West Texas, his early rambunctious nature, and his budding mm-hmm. love of music. He was married and working in radio, and had just met a fellow musician named Charles, who was about to change his life, and the world at large. As we mentioned in the last episode, Waylon was appearing on radio station KDAV in Lubbock during the Sunday Dance Party Show. Teenagers would pull up into the parking lot of the station, which was basically in a shack on the outskirts of town, tune in and watch the action inside through the windows. Uh, Now, they would play records, but they would also play a lot of live music. 
Waylon had a little band uh, at this time with a steel player named Bill Clark, but he also played in the band of a young cowgirl singer named Hope Griffith, along with steel player Weldon Myrick, who would go on to become one of Nashville's finest session players. There was also this shy, quiet fellow from Wink, Texas, that no one thought would make it because of his unusually high voice. Couldn't find much on what he did outside of play those Sunday dance parties, but maybe one day more will be said or written about whatever happened to that guy who was named Roy Orbison. Huh. I sing in Freak. He's never going to amount to anything. I want to say that Roy Orbison was our very first episode on the podcast. He was. Episode one. Episode one was yep. Roy Orbison because Correct. my dad well, had purchased headphones for me and I let him pick the first one and he picked Roy Orbison. He picked Roy. So yeah, Roy... And Waylon, both at this point, complete unknowns, were playing on this Sunday dance party at KDAV Radio. Then there was the aforementioned Charles. Now, he played with a guy named Bob Montgomery, mostly doing country music. Even though they were less than a year apart in age, Waylon said that Charles seemed to have a lot more experience. He seemed a bit more worldly and was an exceptionally bright person. Quote, he was a real happy person. That's always through my life, as I look back, he was so happy, Waylon said on Ralph Emery's record in 1996. Things changed, though, when a new sensation named Elvis Presley blew through Texas in the early 1950s. He was billed as the king of hillbilly bop at the time, <laughs> which is, I find, I oddly find amusing for some reason. That is a hillbilly good bop. Hillbilly bop. Uh, Waylon missed him. Hillbilly bop. bop. It just, yeah, that was a, I think that was a, a poison B-side, wasn't it? Indeed it was. Uh, Waylon missed his show the first time he came through, but he heard about it and learned that he had made the princely sum of a $150 to play that concert. When he came through again less than a year later, though, his star was on the rise and he was paid $4,000 to play Ooh, in West Texas. And Waylon not only went to that show, he was invited backstage and he got to meet the soon-to-be king and his guitar, Scotty Moore. Waylon said that Elvis was quite a ladies' man, that he just literally what? oozed charisma and energy. And said he was very, very friendly. Waylon actually liked the way that he'd handled himself, too, since coming up, Elvis had been called everything from white trash to horrible variations of the N-word. And Waylon heard that, that Elvis had actually kicked several dudes' asses on the way up the ladder, which, of course, Waylon liked very much. That's good, <laughs> his, his good graces, yeah. The funny thing, you don't think of, of uh, Elvis as being an ass kicker, but apparently he, he did some of that early on. I, I can I, see that actually. I can actually really see that. I'm sorry. I mean, El Elvis is a Elvis is oh young Elvis. Mm, there is some butter for your biscuits, girls. Young Elvis. Ooh, I think I'm gonna have flash. It's like Pedro Pascal, but with nope, just like Pedro Pascal. What for? You know, you can say whatever you want to about Elvis. Yeah. You know, well, he was, uh, the, you know, lots of, and that's a very, a very familiar sentiment among a lot of of, of people. Uh, LD, a lot of ladies think that oh, young Elvis was so good looking and the, the matinee idol looks, and he was a musician, and it's like, yeah, but he was also a trucker from Mississippi. So I think if you gave him lip, he might would just kick your ass. I can see that. Yeah. Mm. Don't ever forget, he was a truck driver from Mississippi first and foremost. So um, yummy. But anyway. Waylon, you know, kind of heard about some of these stories about Waylon having to having to curb stomp a couple of dudes along the way. And he, of course, liked that very much. More than that, though, Waylon loved the music that Elvis was making. Quote, I was crazy about Elvis, he wrote. I love that churning rhythm on the bottom. He didn't even have drums yet, but the rock and roll was unmistakable. It made an impression on everyone else, too, especially Waylon's friend Charles. Waylon said he always thought that Charles was a good performer, but only an OK singer of country songs. Once he added Larry Welburn on bass, and 
and sometimes Waylon's friend Sonny Curtis on the fiddle and started playing a rock country fusion that he called Western Bop, Charles really took off. This sounds funny, but this was kind of a big deal for him. He appeared with Elvis at the opening of a Pontiac dealership in Texas <laughs> and then fronted for Elvis on a package tour that had the two of them opening for Furlan Husky. What? His big break, though, yeah. Yeah, Elvis opening for Furlan Husky. Yeah, things that, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's just let's just think about that one for didn't, a second. Didn't Jimi Hendrix open for the Monkees one time or something? Well, that's kind of like Madonna. That's like Madonna opening up for the Beastie Boys or David Bowie opening up for T Rex. Like it's yeah. as just a, as a mime, as a as mime, mime. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, as a mime. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories. Who thought that would be a good idea? Uncle Arthur. <laughs> However, Charles's big break came when he was invited to open for Bill Haley and his Comets. At that show, he was discovered by a guy named Eddie Crandall of Decca Records which was looking for its own version of Elvis Presley. So Charles, uh, along with Curtis, and a new rhythm section went to Nashville and cut a few songs that didn't make much of a dent in the charts. Charles balked at the Nashville system and was frustrated over the lack of creative control that he had there. That, kids, is what we call foreshadowing, but we'll come back to that later. Waylon said at this point he was, quote, busier than a three-peckered goat, huh. which I, would make I, I, one rather busy having three-peckered huh. I am no, I am no longer thirsty. I, I struggle to figure out how to incorporate that into conversation. <laughs> you don't. You leave it here. This is where it ends. I've jelloed. I've, I've, I've nailed the jello to the wall. We stop it here. It is now art. <laughs> okay. All right. It stops here. Waylon was still making appearances on the Sunday dance party, was working as a DJ at KLVT in Leveland, Texas, and playing shows and talent contests every time he had the opportunity. There was a station in Lubbock called KLLL, which was located at the top of the Great Plains Life Insurance Company building. Waylon was getting a lot of attention both for his on-air delivery and for his ability to craft station jingles and commercials out of popular country songs of the day. KLLL's new owners were to be A.G. Corbin and his sons Slim and Sky, some wealthy, long, tall Texans, all of whom stood about six foot five. They hired him away from KLVT and had decided to go with a country format. That would put them in direct competition with KDAV, which was America's first country music radio station. Now, Waylon said KDAV was a little looser and sloppier, like you'd hear a DJ say, now here's Hank Williams. And then there'd be a few seconds of silence and then crackle and pops of a poorly queued up record. At KLLL, KLLL as they called it, they talked right up until the lyrics kicked in and they produced very slick commercials instead of doing live reads. They did live remotes from a grocery store fairly often. And Waylon set the phone lines aflame once upon a time during one of those by announcing, quote, come on down to Georgia's fruit and vegetables. And remember, you can't beat Georgia's meat. (laughs) Three-peckered goat. (laughs) Three-peckered goat. Oh, my God. My takeaways from this episode are going to be phenomenal. Oh, there are levels to this story. Yes, there's a lot happening here. (laughs) Um, Another popular DJ, a guy named High Pockets. Yes, there are. There are. Another popular DJ named High Pockets Duncan from KDAV joined the station as well. I love now, that name. High Pockets. Yes, High Pockets Duncan. I don't know why. It yeah. just works. There was one on-air holdover from the previous owners who went by the uh, on-air moniker Mr. Sunshine, but Waylon didn't like him very much. <laughs> so Mr. Sunshine would play gospel records 
And he seemed to frown on some of the shenanigans. And there were plenty of them, uh, of Waylon, Hot Pockets, and Slim Corbin. Oh. Um, but he also had a habit of trying to pick up old ladies to bang off the request. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, per Waylon, this guy would be playing, like, oh. gospel music and sweet-talking shut-ins trying to uh, line up a visit later. There is so much thirst in this episode. There is so... This is the... This is like the thirstiest episode we've ever had. (laughs) Sounds like a really bad division of the mafia. Beat High Pockets and Mr. Sunshine. (laughs) The least least intimidating associates you could ever run into. (laughs) Yeah, but Mr. Sunshine never Uh, smiles. He just, that's that's the irony of his name. (laughs) Lord. I'm imagining like uh, in the background, you're hearing like, on the wings of a snow white dove. And, and Mr. Sunshine's like, what are you wearing, Granny? <laughs> oh, God. And then you have high pockets. He's trying to tag shut-ins. Oh, my God. This is, you, you can't make this up. You cannot make this up. It's like a You know what? Limb. You know what? He didn't discriminate, oh, and I like him for that. Oh, I do like, goodness. like that. I do like him for that. But it's like, so you want to come over? Like, well, no, you can't come over, but I'll have to come to you. But still. Because <laughs> you don't leave your house. You guys want to get together and watch uh, some Lawrence Welk? Mm. We'll eat some unseasoned mashed potatoes and get crazy. We'll have some. We'll have some Werther's original and see where the night takes us. Our Let's see where the night finds, goes. Our app finds recluses in your area. <laughs> oh, God. Oh jeez. Oh. All right, this has gone off the rail. All right, bring it in. Bring it in. Just All right, in. reeling it back Ooh. in. Um, now, working at the station was beneficial to Waylon in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, he and Maxine had their first child by this time, that being son Terry Vance Jennings, who was born in 1958, and daughter Julie Ray Jennings joined the fold just a year later. So he needed a steady source of income to support his family. But in that station's small production studio, he also learned how to overdub and sing harmony with himself, which uh, would come in handy down the line, of course. Now, is he, he's like 19 at this point or 20? He's about, we're in 1958, so Waylon's about 20. Oh my goodness, okay. Yeah, so still a young guy, but have one kid already and another one on the way. So uh, he's making money at the station, but he's also starting to learn his craft a little bit. He's learning to, to overdub and to sing harmony with himself in this little um, recording studio at KLLL. He was also making some extra money and earning some valuable experience playing at a joint called the Cotton Club, which patrons all, often referred to as, quote, the bloody bucket. It was to play it within a song or two. They would throw beer bottles at the stage. Like the bar now, and roadhouse, basically? Yeah, like, like the bar and roadhouse. Now, there was chicken wire protecting the band from flying objects, but some still got through. And Waylon said he learned to play duck and not miss a beat all at the same time <laughs> um now after a few months Waylon's old buddy charles came back to town with he and his dad lawrence stopping by the station to visit Waylon. now things had changed for the better for charles after his miserable experience in nashville he had gone to clovis new mexico and recorded some demos at the studio of a guy named norman petty drummer jerry allison and bass player joe B- joe b malden and went in intent on doing his music his way those demos became songs that were hits and remain classics today. He played in New York and abroad and became one of the first popular rock singers to write his own hits. Now, some of you, ones who already know some of Waylon's life story, have probably already figured out the identity of Charles. But for those who have not, Charles did not go by his given first name, though he did keep his real last name on stage, though he used a different spelling of it. That friend of Waylon was born Charles Harden 
Holly. He went by hmm. his nickname Buddy. Nice. Um, yeah. The spelling, the actual spelling was H O L L E Y, but he went with H O L L Y. So Charles was actually Buddy Holly. Buddy really liked hanging out with the Corbins and Hot Pockets, but he took a special interest in Waylon, as you will see. Now, uh, Buddy Starr continues to shine so brightly, and he is still viewed with such adoration to this day. It's easy to forget that his actual time in the spotlight was less than two years. Most of what you know of Buddy Holly came out in about a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, he did not have an especially long career. Not in the way you probably think of him because he had so many great songs, right? You think, well, this is a decade's worth of music. And he, it came out in about 18 months is, 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 is the reality of it. Yep. And that's uh, that's the same story for another person I think we're about to cover, too. So, uh, yep. Very similar. Yeah. Yep. yep. I don't like so this. By this time, uh, about <laughs> mid-1958, Waylon, by this time, and we're in about mid-1958 now, Waylon said the crickets were already starting to fall apart. Per Waylon, Hedy, who was now sort of managing Buddy Holly and the Crickets, was ripping Buddy off. Just as an example, he said after Buddy finished recording Oh Boy and left the studio, Hedy had some background singers at a dumb diddy do. He tacked it at the beginning of the song and gave himself a writing credit uh, for the whole song. Yeah. Devious. Now, the thing was, Buddy was now married to Maria Elena, who worked in publishing. She knew that Buddy was getting ripped off. He had moved to New York, wanting to be closer to the music and publishing businesses. And Waylon said that Petty essentially saw Buddy starting to slip away from him. Back home and visiting, though, Buddy was working on a song, and he had Waylon help him finish writing it. Waylon said Buddy basically had the song. He just helped him, you know, finish out a few lines. They cut a demo in the KLLL studios, and Waylon and High Pockets provided hand claps for percussion. Now, you may have heard the final polished version of the song, but you may not have heard the original demo. And we're going to fix that right now. I'm going to tell you up front, it sounds like a demo. It ends very abruptly, but it's a little musical artifact that I'm glad somebody saved, and I'm glad that we can listen to now. So we're going to. This is Buddy Holly with Waylon and Hot Pockets Duncan on the hand claps with a song called You're the One. You're the one that's causing my blues. You're the one I don't want to lose. You're the one that I'd always choose. You're the one that's meant for me. You're the one that I'm thinking of. You're the one that I'll always love. You're the one. Sent from heaven above You're the one that's meant for me Sometimes you make me feel so bad You make me cry deep in my heart I feel like an actor in a play Who doesn't fit the part You're the one And I want you to know You're the one That thrills me so You're the one I can't let you go, you're the one that's meant for me Sometimes you make me feel so bad, you make me cry deep in my heart I feel like an actor in a play who doesn't fit the part You're the one, and I want you to know you're the one That thrills me so, you're the one I can't let you go, you're the one that's meant for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that does end abruptly, doesn't it? It is. That's... <laughs> 
And it's like, and we're out. That's it. That's it. That, that's, that's how you get. That's as cold an end as you'll get. <laughs> or it just stops. Very opposite. Um, so, I mean, obviously, we just listened to going. a demo. Yeah. Right. Clearly they, a they demo. didn't know how to end. So, but what we just listened to was a minute and a half long demo recorded in a small production studio at a radio station with Waylon and Hot Pockets, you know, clapping for percussion. Still, what did you guys think of it? I mean, it's it sounds more Buddy Holly than it does Waylon Jennings. Like, sure. that that is for sure very much more Buddy Holly. Now, it reminds me of Peggy Sue. I will say yeah. that. But honestly, like even in its simplicity, I really did appreciate it because you can see where this sound is headed, and I love it. Right, right, and and that's a song that Waylon did help him write. In terms of the lyrics, anyway, he he had the the tune and the melody and all that stuff and a lot of the lyrics, but Waylon kind of helped him flesh that one out a little bit. So, anyway, Buddy and Waylon were getting to be very close friends, and Buddy imparted a lot of knowledge on Waylon. He talked to him a lot about artistic vision and that he didn't need to let anybody tell him how to make music. Again, kids, this is called foreshadowing, but we'll come back to it later. He needed to get the sounds in his head onto records and out to the public. He told him that he didn't need to box himself in, though, as just being a country artist. As you'll see as the series progresses, Waylon had an excellent range as a singer, such that Buddy believed he could sing country or rock or pop or some mishmash of multiple genres if that's what he wanted to do. Quote, he taught me so much in such a short amount of time, Waylon said. I learned so damn much from him about rhythms, about not overstaying your welcome and not compromising. One of the things that Buddy wanted to do was start his own record label, and he wanted his first act to be Waylon Jennings. For his part, Waylon was flattered, but he had no idea what Buddy saw in him. He said at that point he had the star power of, quote, an old shoe and was still very green. Maybe Buddy saw saw him for the diamond in the rough that he was. Or maybe he knew how much music meant to Waylon. Or maybe he saw some of himself in Waylon, a young kid from the sun-baked Texas plains just trying to make his way. Waylon's first real recording session would be in Clovis, New Mexico. Buddy was having the great R&B sax player King Curtis fly down to play on some of his songs and arrange for him to play on a song with Waylon. George Atwood and Bo Clark would play bass and drums respectively because the crickets refused to do it. This, at this point, they and Buddy were at complete odds on everything. Really? Huh. Yeah. Buddy would play guitar, and he wanted Waylon to record the song Jolie Blonde, which is sort of a standard of French Cajun music. Waylon thinks he got the idea after is is was the song called Volari, Volare. an Italian song. That one, Whoa. yeah, Volari, yeah. Volari. Okay, so just before this, Volare had been a number one hit on the Billboard charts, and that song was in Italian. So Buddy thought it might be fun to just do a song in French. The hang up here is that they didn't know the lyrics to Joe Blonde, so they listened to another version and they tried to transcribe them i guess like phonetically as best they could because not neither of them spoke french (laughs) um i'm gonna just tell you up front this sounds absolutely nothing like the whalen that you're probably familiar with in terms of a gravelly baritone or rowdy country music and and the outlaw you know atmosphere that embodies itself into so many of his recordings but this is his first real record so we are going to listen to it so this is waylon jennings along with uh, the great king curtis and buddy holly bo clark and george atwood uh with their stab at joe leblon Jolie 
they should never be allowed to speak French. <laughs> First of all, if I had just played you that side and saying, would you ever have guessed it was Waylon Jennings? No, I would not have. Not a million years. That that literally would never have entered my mind. I would, side unsane, I would have been like, huh, let's see, some sort of teen idol type, probably. Um, the other thing is, obviously, very broken French, because they didn't know the actual lyrics to the song. <laughs> Again, they were <laughs> transcribing them phonetically, like, as best they could, listening to somebody else's recording That's of funny. it. Which is funny. But, you know, King Curtis's sax sounds good. As one would yeah. imagine it would. Yeah. yeah. No, but the voice is great. It's just, um, I don't even speak French, which is a shame because I'm from Louisiana. But, ow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a... <laughs> but important we listen to that because that was Waylon's first real recording. That was Jolly Bond. So, uh, Waylon did a few other songs in the studio in Clovis. Uh, Buddy had the leave in this part of their sessions though so petty sat in and he did not like the idea of buddy starting a record label and he didn't like Waylon. and the feeling was very mutual so Waylon said that petty went out of his way to make him feel as uncomfortable as possible in the studio hmm. a oh, few good. months later right a few months later buddy made one of his stops by k triple l to visit Waylon, and he brought along a surprise he tossed Waylon a bass guitar and said quote you have two weeks to learn to play that thing <laughs> Buddy had signed on for a three-week tour of the North and Midwest called the Winter Dance Party. Now he yep. and the crickets were still this, odds. So this he is to, this he, I know. Yep. This is this I yep. Yeah. Yep. This is yep. about this where is, I mentally check out. This is yep. about. The, yep. I was going to say this is where the this is where the very dark pieces start to fit together. If you know the story, but we're, we'll we'll march forward. Buddy and the crickets were at odds, and Buddy needed a band, so he recruited Waylon to play bass, and he recruited guitar. As Tommy Alsup and also drummer Carl Goose Bunch. Now, you obviously can't learn to play a musical instrument in two weeks. Waylon played guitar, but he, he'd never even held a bass, I don't think. So Waylon just memorized the bass parts of the songs. He said he literally was just playing from memory do this, do this, do this, do this, boom, 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 boom. He said he didn't actually play it, he just memorized the parts he needed and just kind of did the best he could. 
in retrospect, Waylon said it was ridiculous, and, mm-hmm. and it angered him that Buddy had to do the tour. In his book, Waylon said that Teddy had all of Buddy's funds tied up, and bluntly, he said Buddy did the tour because he needed the money. He had a new wife. They had a new place in New York. Per Waylon, Teddy had all of all of his money kind of tied up somehow. I mean, Buddy just need, he needed money. So, mm. so if you think about what's coming, that makes this even worse. Again, we'll just keep going. Yeah. Buddy took Waylon, Goose, and Tommy to New York a few weeks ahead of the tour. Alsop and Goose stayed in a hotel, but Waylon stayed with Buddy and his wife, Maria Elena. Waylon liked his friend's wife. They said she couldn't cook worth a damn. <laughs> she made them beans one night and scorched them. <laughs> Buddy whispered to him to just eat them and not say anything. She also called him Waylon's. That's how she pronounces his name, Waylon's. Waylon's. Okay. And said that his voice gave her, quote, goose bumples. <laughs> That's funny. That's adorable. Um, she was still, I thought it was hilarious that she, that she, that she said goose bumples in Waylon's. That's precious. For Waylon and Tommy, I, I don't know if either of them had ever been out of, I guess they'd been to New Mexico, but pretty much they'd been in the Southwest their entire lives. This was like a major case of country comes to town, right? They're, they're in New York. The biggest building Waylon said he had ever seen in his life was a 15-story building in Houston. But they looked straight up and gawked. I mean, literally stood staring straight up and gawked at the Empire State Building. Yeah. <laughs> Believe that. Uh, they ate at a deli for the first time, and they had no idea what any of the meats were. Did they get to swim in a cement pond while they were there? <laughs> they may have. Well, it's, 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 it's the winter, so probably not unless there was an indoor one. But they, they tried this stuff uh, on the menu called liverwurst, and they thought oh. that it totally sucked. So, so, so it lived up to its name. Right. So the lady working the deli counter brought them something else because she could tell they didn't like it. And it was uh, the substance called corned beef, and they didn't like that either. Waylon did not want to offend the lady, though, being a, a, a good Southern gentleman. So he just put the sandwich in his pocket and he threw it away once he left. Waylon did like getting an eye full of New York women. But Buddy would screw with him and say, Waylon, that was a man in a wig. Not- <laughs> Waylon would get all, all freaked out and everything. They did buy some mobster-style trench coats and a few other sets of clothes. And Waylon and Buddy stopped in a photo booth at Grand Central Station to take a couple of pictures. Those photos have become quite famous, particularly one of Buddy shooting a bird. <laughs> Quote, looking at the shades and cigarette shots, grinning and foreheads touching, even today, you can tell we were happy to be with each other. He was watching over me. We were buddies, Waylon said. Before they left, Buddy laid down a couple of songs in his apartment. He had just gotten a new Gibson guitar, and he bought a new tape machine. He cut Peggy Sue Got Married and covered Love is Strange, which is apparently a song he absolutely loved, and Slipping and Sliding. They boarded a train at Grand Central Station bound for Chicago, Chicago where they would meet up with the other artists on the tour. It was to be a grueling 25-show tour in 25 days in the frigid upper Midwest. Oof. Yeah, with a person who apparently didn't own Opening a friggin' night, map. It, right. Right, and, we, and we'll get into that as, as we go along here. Opening night was George Devine's Ballroom in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, the bill was Buddy Holly and the Crickets, the Big Bopper, Dion and the Belmonts, Richie Valens, and a fellow named Frankie Sardo, Oddly to me, missing from the bill somehow was Manfred. Manfred, 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 Manfred. 
He's just going to keep going, isn't he? Probably. All right. Roll it, Tom McGinnis of Manford Man's Earth Band. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manford Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Oh, I just love it so much. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that was a little palate cleanser before we get into the rough stuff here. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, TJ, we are going to take a short break for our sponsors. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, we are back. Thanks, Will. We're going to get back now into the life and times of Waylon Jennings. Now, all of the artists on the bill were hot at the time, aside from Sardo, who was uh, an Italian fella. Now, Waylon said he could not sing worth a damn. He would sing way off the beat, but he was rumored to have connections. Oh, oh, uh, oh like, like, like he knows a guy who could get something? Yeah, he knows a guy. That's okay. it. They're in the sanitation business. Got it. Um, Construction. Waylon remembered, Waylon remembered that Sardo's father came to one of the early shows on the tour with, quote, two big goons on either side of him. Still, Waylon said he was the funniest guy that he'd ever met, Sardo was. When the first bus froze up on the tour, and they apparently used as many as five during this tour, it apparently came after Sardo had done a little comedy bit he worked up about Joseph and Mary, in which he referred to Jesus as, quote, the little bastard. Yeah. Huh. Waylon wondered if that maybe had something to do with the buzz constantly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Which, uh, you know, maybe it did. Yeah. Now, once the original tour bus froze up and, and Goose, the drummer, actually suffered frostbite on his feet and had to be hospitalized because of that, Jeez. the artists were packed into an old school bus. It was cramped. It was bitter cold, about 40 below on the night the original bus froze up, and none of the artists were able to do their laundry. They simply didn't have time. GAC, the General Amusement Corporation, faced a great deal of criticism after the fact for the shoddy transportation and the scattershot nature of the dates. Waylon said that they smelled like a bunch of goats. I don't know if there were three pecker goats, standard issue one pecker kinds. Um, (laughs) He didn't elaborate. Not specified, huh? Um, I mean, I could do additional research if y'all think that would be beneficial in some way to the series. You Um, know what? I think we're good. I don't want you to be on a list. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, now, that didn't prevent some of the normal rock and roll funny business from going on, though. Dion of Dion of the Belmonts apparently lost one of his contact lenses while he was entertaining a young lady on the bus. Ah, I wonder where it uh, went. Don't know. <laughs> huh. Now, Waylon just drank all of it in, listening to the stories and marveling that he was living his dream. Not only was he playing with his friend and mentor, Buddy Holly, uh, he and the rest of his band were backing up almost everybody else on the tour. He was playing in front of a thousand or more people a night, and he was loving it. Now, Buddy was starting to have trouble and actually had been having trouble with Petty. 
He got back on the bus after a shouting match over a payphone and was atypically mad and cursing. He was also missing Maria Elena. She was originally going to come on the tour, but she was pregnant with their first child and she was suffering from terrible morning sickness, so he urged her to stay home. Waylon said that Buddy was very dedicated to his wife, but he also felt like he was probably getting a bit antsy by this time (laughs) because they'd been apart for a bit. He thinks that Buddy perhaps thought about getting a little road strange, but he said that he did not do it. uh, Let's just be honest. It's a bunch of guys. You're on the bus with a bunch of dudes, and they're horny, right? He's away from his wife. He probably had some thoughts, but he didn't act on them. He also noted, perhaps related, but not necessarily, that in one town they rolled into, a sheriff just the day before their arrival had, quote, shut down all the whorehouses and gambling places. (laughs) How, How strategic. And that they were... Perhaps not as in favor of that as you might imagine. One morning on the tour, Buddy woke Waylon up by shaking him. Quote, do you want to go to England? He told Waylon not to tell Tommy or Goose because they wouldn't be going. He told him his plan was to get the crickets back together. Waylon would be their opening act, he said. We could have some fun, Buddy enthused. Uh, Buddy told him he would, he would think about it. He said, I'd never been out of Texas, and now I'm in Chicago and New York and all these big cities. So it, it, it's probably something Waylon would have done because he trusted Buddy that much. If Buddy said, let's do it, he would have done it. Unfortunately, that would never happen. On February 3rd, 1959, the winter dance party rolled into the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. Mm. By this point, Buddy was, Buddy was tired of freezing on an uncomfortable bus. So he decided to charter a plane to fly he, Waylon, and Tommy to the next day. Goose, as far as I know, was probably still in the hospital because of the frostbite. And Richie Valens was actually sitting in on the drums for them. Yeah. For most of their shows. Oh, wow. Yeah. The next day after clear like Iowa was to be Moorhead, Minnesota the next night. And the nearest airport was in Fargo, North Dakota, right across the river from Moorhead. So the three would fly out of the Mason City Municipal Airport after the show on a plane provided by the Dwyer Flying Service. That would allow them to get to town early, get some sleep, and do their laundry. While Sardo warmed up the crowd, Buddy told Waylon and Tommy of his plans, and it was agreed that they would all take the plane. But cover of Paul Clayton's Gotta Travel On, played some familiar songs like Peggy Sue, That'll Be the Day, It's So Easy, and Oh Boy. And they finished up with a rousing version of Chuck Berry's Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. Their plane took off at 12.55 a.m. from runway 17 with 21-year-old pilot Roger Peterson at the controls. Someone on the ground saw the taillights of their 1947 V-tail Beechcraft 35 Bonanza plane for most of what turned out to be a tragically short flight. By 1 a.m., Peterson failed to make expected radio contact. Many unsuccessful attempts were made to reach him. Dwyer Flying Service owner Hubert Jerry Dwyer, having heard nothing for hours, got on a plane and recreated the flight early the next morning, and within minutes, he spotted wreckage. Officials were summoned to the cornfield belonging to a fellow named Albert Jewell near the airport. The plane had hit the ground going approximately 170 miles per hour, having banked steeply to the right in a nose-down altitude. The right wing hit the ground first, sending the plane cartwheeling across the frozen field for 540 feet, almost the distance of two full football fields, before coming to rest on a fence next to the cornfield. Three bodies were strewn about, and Peterson's was tangled in the wreckage. All aboard almost an investigation later revealed that Peterson was not actually certified in instrument flight, which would have been required that night. Jesus. In fact, Dwyer itself was only certified to operate under visual flight rules. The plane was not equipped with a conventional artificial horizon, and Peterson had been provided with a, quote, seriously inadequate weather report, 
one that did not mention adverse flying conditions. Alsop's wallet and Wayland's clothes were located in the wreckage. As Don McLean would later say, <clears throat> the bad news hit the doorstep and the next and the airwaves the next morning, with headlines screaming initially that Buddy Holly and his band had been killed in a plane crash. The news got to Littlefield, Texas, and the Jennings household. Maxine was dealt the blow of having to accept the reality that she was now a widow with two children to raise. Wayland's mother, upon hearing the news, screamed a scream that can probably only be replicated by a mother that's lost a child. She was so overcome with shock and grief, she literally collapsed on the floor. Mm. One of Wayland's brothers just bent over at the waist and bawled his eyes out. Within hours, though, they got a phone call, one that likely provided as big a shock as the news of Wayland's death. On the other end of the phone was Wayland. He had not gotten on the plane. In fact, his family learned of Holly's actual death and his supposed death before he did. Riding a bus all night and into the morning, no one on the bus had contact with the outside world. So let's back up just a little bit to the night before. I mentioned Sardo warming up the crowd, and I told you that Buddy came up to Wayland and Tommy and told them he booked a flight. Well, JP, the big bopper Richardson, overheard that discussion. Now, he lived up to his name with Wayland figuring he weighed about 250 pounds, which was a very large man for the time we're talking about. He was especially uncomfortable in the cramp bus and had the flu. He asked Waylon, a fellow Texas DJ, if he'd mind giving up his seat on the plane so that he could get to the next stop early, rest, and maybe see a doctor. He told him that if he could, he would take Waylon's laundry with him and have it done and waiting for him when he arrived, which is why Waylon's clothes were found on the and near the crash site. Waylon was raped thin at this point, and he fit on the bus a lot better than the bopper did. He also saw riding the bus as just living the life and had no idea that agreeing to the deal would actually save his own life. He told him it would be okay with him if it was okay with Buddy. Valens asked also for his seat, and the latter agreed to allow a coin toss to decide things. Valens called heads, and it was heads, so he got the seat. He supposedly commented upon that result that that was the first time he'd ever won anything now contrary to the portrayal that you'll see in a lot of movies all this did not transpire in the airport minutes before takeoff but at the show that night several hours before takeoff when the tour bus pulled into a hotel in moorhead that morning the tour manager went inside then he came back out waylon come here i've got to talk to you he said waylon didn't know what was about to be tommy you go tommy got off the bus and talked to the tour manager he came back onto the bus and announced, boys, the guys didn't make it. Their plane crashed. Waylon was numb and heartbroken. Buddy was his close friend, but he was also the first person who had ever believed in him. He had taken Waylon in the studio, on the road, and under his wing. He was a mentor who had truly invested in him, and now he was gone. But there was something else, that being the last words that he spoke to Buddy. When Buddy heard Waylon and Tommy weren't flying, he razzed them a little and asked if they'd chickened out. Waylon said he had not, but that he felt bad for the big bopper because he had the flu and he gave him his seat. Well, I hope your damn bus freezes up again, Buddy cracked. Yeah, well, I hope your old plane crashes, Waylon said. <laughs> They'd been joking. All were laughing while they ate some hot dogs. But now Waylon was haunted by his words. Quote, I thought it was my fault. For years, I believed that I caused it. Unfortunately, there was no reassuring phone call to the relatives of the actual victims of the crash. Buddy's now widow, Maria Elena, was so shocked, so distraught, and so anguished over the shocking sudden loss of her husband that she suffered a miscarriage. She blamed herself, as Waylon did, 
and said that if she'd gone on the tours plan, Buddy would never have gotten on the airplane. And she was so heartbroken to this day. She has never been to Buddy's gravesite and did not attend the funeral. Oh, God. Partly because of this situation, authorities began withholding the names of accident victims until families were notified. Buddy wasn't the only expectant father on that ill-fated flight, unfortunately. The big bopper and his wife were expecting their second child and their first son. He was born two months after the plane crash. He looked like his dad. He sang like his dad. He was named J.P. Richardson like his dad, but he'd never meet his dad. 17, and Buddy, the budding pioneer and genius, was 22. Understandably, no one wanted to continue, especially Waylon and Tommy. Irving failed from GAC called, and he begged them to play on, saying that he'd pay to fly them first class back to Lubbock for Buddy's funeral if they would just play up until the day before his funeral. The promoters in Moorhead thanked them for playing on, saying that they'd have gone under had the show not been played. And then after the concert, at which 15-year-old Bobby V sang Buddy's songs, the club tried to stiff the artist because Buddy, the bopper, and Valens had not shown up to play as kind. What? Practice. Special place in hell. When the tour manager passed that info on to Waylon, he told him to go back inside and tell them that if they didn't pay them the full amount owed, that he would destroy their club and cost them more in repairs than they would have to pay the artist. They were paid. And as you will learn later in this series, Waylon was not joking. Frankie Avalon and Jimmy Clanton were brought in to fill out the card for the artist that had passed away. Waylon mostly filled in singing for Buddy after the Moorhead show, although Tommy also arranged for a, quote, Elvis-looking guy named Ronnie Smith to come sing for him as well. Waylon said that he and Tommy really didn't get along after Buddy died. He said at some point, Clanton actually tried to walk off with Buddy's guitar. Waylon took it back and had to be stopped from whipping Clanton's ass. Quote, I was so torn up, I would have whipped anybody's ass, Waylon said. GAC did not make good on their promise to fly Waylon and Tommy back for Buddy's funeral, so they missed it. So basically, you took these two kids who were heartbroken, had, are probably suffering from what we now know as survivor's syndrome, lost their best friend, their mentor. This is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And you lied to them and exploited them so you could make money. So special place <laughs> in hell. They also only paid them half of what they were actually owed by the time the tour ended. Heartsick over his friend's death and by missing his funeral and disgusted by annex and lies, Waylon wanted nothing else to do with the music business. When they got back to New York, he locked his bass and amps up in a Grand Central Station locker and mailed the keys to Maria Elena. He also, Ronnie Smith and Goose, would drive back to Texas from New York. Now, Goose could barely see, and Smith, per Waylon, was on drugs and eventually died of glue sniffing, so... He and Tommy decided that they would drive and that they would trade off driving so that they didn't have to stop. The only time that they stopped on the entire trip is when the car froze up. Otherwise, they scored some truck stop speed of somewhere around Ohio and didn't stop to sleep until they reached the Texas line. Whalen was dropped off at the home of his parents in Littlefield. He did go visit the Holly family in Lubbock shortly after returning, but his parents never got over the loss of their son until the day they died. It was perpetually 1959 in their house with Buddy's pictures still adorning the wall, his clothes still in his dresser, his closet untouched, and his room exactly as he'd left it. <sighs> they gave Waylon Buddy's guitars, but people kept trying to steal them, so Waylon gave them back. They'd buy him clothes, and Mr. Holly offered to manage Waylon, mindful of how much he meant to his son. He politely declined, though. Now, he did write a song called Buddy's Song, and he gave it to them. He also signed over any royalties that he might get for You're the One, telling them that that was Buddy's song and that he only added a few words here and there. 
He didn't want to listen to music. He didn't want to play his guitar and he didn't want to sing anymore. He was back where he'd started and he was a broken man when he got there. He had a second chance and a new lease on life, but Waylon Jennings didn't want either. And I wish I had a happier ending for you, but sometimes there's not a happy ending to be had. Ooh. Wow. So thoughts? I don't like it. I don't like it. I think having listened to this podcast for like our longtime listeners, they know that like my worst nightmare is plane crash. We went through the rest of the day the music died. So you can go back and check out. I want to say it's like season one or season two, episode 50, 51, and 52, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, We covered everyone that was uh, in the plane. So we covered Richie, Buddy, and the Big Bopper. Um, And every episode I had to relive that plane crash and I had to just relive it again. And it's, it's the worst feeling in the world. And losing someone like Buddy had to be a blow for Waylon. You, can't, you know, it's just someone who believed in him and someone who worked with him. And then, and then they I collaborated think, together. That can't be easy. I, th- I think I think a lot of people know that, you know, Waylon was one of the touring crickets. And they know that he was involved. And a lot of people know the story about telling him, I hope your plane crashes. I don't think people realize how, how close they were. I, I don't think people understand what good friends they were. And I don't think they understand what Buddy meant to Waylon. How how this this is like, I mean, this is imagine whoever you think the biggest star in your universe is and they, they decide that they're going to be your friend and they're going to take your hand and they're going to walk you toward, you know, your dream of, you know, musical stardom and, and recording and touring and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like a hand of God is coming down and anointing Waylon almost when, you know, with, when he has this association with Buddy. But they, they were they were very good friends. I mean, I mean, and Goose stayed in the hotel. Waylon stayed with Buddy and Maria. He was talking about taking Waylon to England and having him open for the crickets once he got the crickets back together and everything. This was not just like a guy he was playing with. I mean, this was his mentor and a guy he looked up to and, and one of his best friends. And the way they got treated the whole tour, but after he died, is just disgusting. The image of Buddy's room, his parents' house, essentially never changing after he died is one of the, that's such a sad image. I don't even like thinking about it. To be yeah. honest with you. Because it's depressing as hell. Will, you have any thoughts on uh, I mean, it's... Yeah. You know, we can talk a lot about, you know, the, the events, of course, and I know that we're affected by them, but I, I just don't think we'll have anything close to, like you said, what Waylon will have. Like, that personal connection, that loss. Uh, I mean, Buddy's family. It's just like, we won't know how that felt. It's impossible. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's one of those events the, in music that like, again, I think everyone knows or not everyone, but you could talk about the details and, and you can feel sad, but again, I just don't, we're, we're not going to connect on the level that Waylon did. And again, he's giving up everything right now. It's, you know, he's, he's done. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. He, he essentially limped back home and he was just kind of done. And then you think about the angle of their two expectant fathers amongst mm-hmm. the four people counting the pilot on that plane. And, um, Maria Lane was so distraught. I mean, she she suffered a miscarriage. I mean, that's that's like I can, that's so horrific. I can't even get my mind around it. And then, you know, for for the, you know the big bopper, his wife was seven months pregnant at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he had you know he had he had plans to um, open a you know, recording. He was a DJ and he, he was a songwriter and, and recording artist. He was opening uh, had plans to open his own recording studio. I think and he had written a ton of songs. I don't think people really realize the big bopper was a really good song he like he wrote white light that george jones made so famous he was a great songwriter 
and they just had the whole world uh, that all, that whole group just had the whole world in front of them. And Richie Valens, I mean, for crying out loud, the day he was seventeen, seventeen years old, he's a kid. I mean, he was a literal kid. Um, just so so tragic. And then you you think about the angle of how slow because we can't almost grasp this now. Information moves so slowly then that Waylon, the well, everybody, they're on that bus, completely shut off from the outside world. Waylon's parents knew that Buddy was dead before Waylon did. But of course, they also thought that Waylon was dead because the initial reports were Buddy Holly and his band had been in this crash and they and did it, find Waylon's Yeah, I was gonna uh, say they, they, they found, found his clothes. Tommy's wallet in the wreckage. Yeah. They found yeah. his clothes in Tommy's wallet. So initially you know, because let's just be honest, it's probably hard to identify the, the remains because that was it was a very violent, horrible crash. They just they, they assumed, you know, that everybody ran with the story that this was Buddy Holly and his band were killed. So when that hits Littlefield, Texas, as far as the Jennings family knows, Waylon was on that plane and he's dead. Yeah. I, I, and I, I imagine Tommy's family would have been likewise. So <sighs> it's just there's there's not. And like I said, I'll, the ending was so was so dark and grim i almost like was almost thinking like perhaps i should rewrite this but it is what it is and it's, there's not a happy ending to this part of the story unfortunately so yeah that's all i got guys all right so i guess i'll give our socials and end it here i'm gonna say god i hope that the next episode is more fun Please, can you can you like have uh, we, we, uh, things pick up considerably? <laughs> I need I need like okay. I need like cocaine bear and ass beatings, please. More of yeah. that and less that level of chicanery. Yeah. So yes, well, the, the chicanery gets ratcheted up considerably from here on out. So <laughs> oh, good. I think we've gotten most of the bad stuff out of the way until <sighs> the very end. Okay. Well, again, like I said on our Facebook page a couple days ago, I had posted. A uh, post about our Patreon asking for ideas for different tiers. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw that or not because we haven't gotten any kind of uh, feedback. So please, guys, go over there, throw your ideas in the chat. Let me know because we'd love to get the Patreon to be something like that people want to go to and like hang out at and and be a fun place and stuff. So do that uh, for for Aunt Lindley. Uh, you can uh, do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. If you're feeling uh, nostalgic, I guess go to our Twitter because we're really I, I've lost the password. I don't know what's happening, but you can go to uh, Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website, and please check out our TikTok where you can get a lot of really cool fun facts and me wearing basically the same shirt every single video. Good job, honey. Uh, that's going to be uh, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And you can also email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please, guys, make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. All right. So, Will, would you like to say anything to the audience? Oh, that was a tough one. Uh, I don't know if we're ending on a song, but uh, I'm looking forward to next week when things are going to get back to the regular insanity. That's that's all I got. I need chicanery. It's that's what chicanery. I need. Yes. Chicanery. and. And I will say uh, thank you guys all for checking this episode out. Please make sure to check us out next week when we start Waylon Jennings Part 3. And hopefully it'll be a little bit more not terror-inducing, um, please. Yeah, perky. But uh, love you all, guys. And I'm going to hand it over to T to close the show out. All right. Yes, well, we promised Chicanery and Ballyhoo next week. We are going to end with a song. Waylon covered Buddy a couple of times during his career. but also wrote a couple of songs about him 
And we're going to hear one of those now. We're going to close out from Rock and Roll Heaven tonight with Waylon Jennings and the song Old Friends. Bye, guys. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.